0: Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So we're going to talk about some poems by Robert Creeley. And I guess it ended up that we're going to talk about three poems by Robert Creeley. And I think that works out splendidly. Just yeah. dicky. So Robert Creeley was born in 1926. In that Massachusetts area, he grew up in Acton, which is in relatively close proximity to Concord mm. and to boston and sort of north of boston a little west of boston uh his dad was a doctor and i think his family you know may have been in that sort of relative affluent scene uh that would coincide with the father who was a doctor but of course his father was dead at five and he lost his eye he was climbing a tree as i recall and a branch took out his left eye you know, is worth knowing. He went to Harvard College for a couple years. The war came, the Second World War. He was in the ambulance corps in India, in Burma. And then he returned to Harvard, spent a couple years there, did not complete his degree. I think he ditched, like you, Sparrow, although (laughs) he lasted a little longer, I think, until his last semester and then he blew out of cambridge and kind of wandered a bit he lived for some period of time in new hampshire raising pigeons um, and running a, a country store he went to menorca he went to provence spain provence france spain and then to menorca he married he had some children he wrote to Charles Olson around 1950. And that's kind of where the, the sand that he was walking on, out of Burma, out of Maniorka, et cetera, had got a little gunpowder mixed in. And, you know, that began his 20-year relationship with Olson. And Olson opened a lot of doors to him um, I think he was at that point maybe living in New Hampshire that that experience raising pigeons was happening. And he'd written, I think, to Sid Corman. Yeah.
1: Who oh, yeah. I was, was going to mention Sid Corman. I
0: Origin Magazine or something like that. And then he put him in touch with Olson, And then Olson brought him into Black Mountain. <laughs> in I was Holland. thinking Black Mountain. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I just wanted to to add that um, Sid Corman featured Robert Creeley on his radio program.
0: Ah, so does that? And,
2: and Olson just happened to be listening, and that's how Olson encountered Robert Creeley's poems for the first time. That's huh. like in
0: the 40s or something. I guess it would be at some point in the 1940s. I thought it was really like 1950. I I don't know Um, anything about
2: these guys, so I I, um, see to your sense.
0: Yeah, no worries. Yeah, so Creeley got his undergraduate degree from Black Mountain, and he was involved in sort of that later Black Mountain period. He moved to New Mexico. He was teaching at a boys' school, like a private school. Hmm. He got a master's degree, I think, from University of New Mexico, and then... Uh, published his book, which, as it happens, all three of our poems fall within. Uh, is called For Love. And I think that was published in 62, although he'd already published The Charm. For Love really significantly put Creeley onto the map. I think he, you know, in his period in Europe, in Menorca, he was writing a lot of short stories. He wrote a novel. Uh, You know, he was still kind of Uh, Messing around, more broadly speaking, in terms of what would be his his line, uh, both figuratively and also literally. Yeah. And then, you know, through through this and that circumstance, he eventually wound up at SUNY Buffalo or the University of Buffalo, I think they call it and stuck it out. Stayed there for 40 years, plus or, or, you know, 35 years, plus or minus, steady. you know, totally brought up uh, one or two, you know, one and a half generation of poets was a funcular in the extreme, incredibly princely um, <laughs> was, was clearly a King. I don't think he ever would have assumed the throne if he were he early on in his life was a bit of a tough guy. He definitely had a chip. I remember the story, for example, when he was at Black Mountain, he used to carry a knife in his boot. <laughs> would you know get in fights in the bars and things like that. But then eventually, through life, through some recognition, through marriages, um, you know, he was married a number of times. Through having children, he had seven children in total. Really? I think. You know, he became, to my mind, just shy. A saint of some form, you know, and truly a person who opened up different worlds for different people uh, broadly and significantly and um, set the course of American poetry or at least one river, which we should Hmm. talk about. Um, And then he died in Texas. I guess it was in 05. I remember I'd corresponded with him. I was in email contact with him and he sent me an email maybe three weeks before he died.
2: You now, Sam, I have a question. Didn't he spend the final few years of his life teaching at Brown? When he moved to, he had some plum gig that was offered to him, in old age, and he took it. Maybe even Peter Gizzy was involved. Or
0: yeah, Cal I mean, Peter, Peter would have been ancillary involved. It was really CD Wright, and I think that was around 03. I remember the machinations around that event. He was hired. He might have taught a year. Then he did that thing in Marfa, Texas, and then he died. How did
2: yeah. he die? How did he die?
0: Uh, he died of some pulmonary ailment that I think may have been associated with smoking. I knew Creeley in a more direct way. In the early 80s, I had graduated from Kenyon College and had this idea that I wanted to find out where words came from, from an etymological vantage And so I went to the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies there and studied with a guy named Paul Scharmach. And Creeley was there. There was also Galway Canal was there, but Creeley was there. And I used to spend time in Creeley's office talking to him. And he would, in the course of, you know, many affable hours, you know, cage cigarettes from me. And we would (laughs) smoke. said, oh, my wife's trying to he was Penelope at that point, trying to get me to quit. And um, so at any rate, I think that he died from some issues around smoking. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't have an exact uh, forensics on that.
2: I, I like what you said about his saintliness. And I, if it's okay, can I just share um, the story that I mentioned to you, Sam?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's a, yeah.
2: It's a, it's a great story. Um, Sparrow, I don't know anything about Robert Creeley. I know some of his poems, as I mentioned, but I don't know much about his biography. I did, however, um, have an opportunity to have dinner with this guy by the name of Greg Demetrius. And Greg Demetrius was a psychology professor. He was a young psychology professor at SUNY Buffalo. I think he had been a graduate student there in the psychology department, ended up um, specializing in psycholinguistics, and then Hmm. took on um, a faculty position very nice guy. He was going through some personal struggles at a, at a point in his life, and a neighbor of his, I want to say the neighbor happened to be Robert Creeley, but he didn't know anything about Robert Creeley's poetic reputation. But Greg Demetrius felt as if this older English professor really took him under his wing. He huh. was very supportive of him on a personal level, asking how things were going and helping him out. Um, sharing his resources, inviting him over for tea, and uh, it, it it just came at the right moment. Um, in many ways, Robert Creeley was like a Buddhist response body, the Bodhisattva emerging in a, whatever whatever form someone needs most in that moment, and off compassion and guidance. And mm-hmm. even though their association with one another was just a few months long. It meant a very profound thing in Greg Demetrius' life. Yeah, so it's just a story of um, human passion and care, and I just wanted Mm. to share that.
1: Thank you, yeah. It's a lovely story. I mean, I got the sense that he was a very kind person, and I know that he wrote lots of blurbs for lots of people. I noticed that, you know, that he was kind of a, you know, supporter of young, struggling poets. I had that sense.
2: Did Sparrow, had you ever met him or did you ever attend a reading that he gave
1: well i yeah i don't i would say i never met him but i went to two readings of his that were you know decades apart and of course i've been thinking about this i went to the naropa institute in 1976 the third year of the naropa institute that was the buddhist institute founded by chogam Trunkpa, who was uh, the guru of allen ginsburg and so allen Ginsberg created what what was called the, and is still called, the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Disembodied Poetics. Poetics. And so I was there, you know, right after the initial super craziness, because supposedly the first two summers were really wild. But the third summer that I was there was, you know, kind of less wild. And Creeley, and I would be 22 years old, you know, I was a hippie living in Florida, or anyway, I thought I was a hippie. I was a person, you know, with long hair working in a natural food store who didn't, uh, who had flunked out of Cornell and uh, had no uh, particular intellectual interests. And, rem- and I think I never knew, who. I didn't know who Creeley was. I just thought, here is a guy with one eye who is drunk on his ass. He seemed like the most drunk I'd ever seen a poet uh, give a reading. That was, uh, maybe he was on heroin. I'm not an expert on drugs or on alcohol, but um, uh, he seemed, uh, you know, it was interesting, a little sad in a way. Uh, You know, he just seemed like a devastated, uh, youngish, devastated dude. And then I saw him read again, I think not long before his death at the St. Mark's Church in the East Village. Yeah, I had a feeling maybe you were there.
0: Yeah, and it was. It was a couple years before he died. I think I have some sort of thing he gave me that I have behind me someplace.
1: Yeah. And he gave a kind of command reading, like a kind of great man reading, you know, a summary of his life. It was incredible. I mean, I just thought this guy is one of the great poets who ever lived. I remember just stunned at the end of it, like just staring at the wall. I couldn't believe I'd seen such an amazing poet. Saying this to myself over and over again, you know, just just uh, what a powerful, you know, one of the great readings I've been to. What an and, incredible know, story. Yeah. And it's funny, right? What a difference 40 years makes or whatever it was, 37 years or something.
0: I mean, the the one thing I would say is that, you know, I know numerous stories of Creeley being drunk and reading, you know, at Harvard, at anywhere, you know. And this actually kind of persisted, period, I think that I knew him in 84, I think he dropped that conceit i don't i don't think he drank that much later in his life in fact i know he didn't because i ran into him in san francisco again in 91 and he you know we were at a bar and he was drinking you know ginger ale sad in a way was there a lot of a patter
1: between the poems i don't remember him being a talker at all i don't remember him having any uh I mean, he's kind of a minimalist poet, and he's kind of a minimalist performer, you know? Like, uh, I don't remember him saying anything. Like Bob Dylan, you know, who you'll see a whole concert, and he won't say a word. <laughs> or he'll tell some terrible joke. Ha! And that's it.
2: And increasingly, it's even hard to find him on stage. It takes a few songs to figure <laughs> out which, which one is Dylan is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, now that he's playing the piano, he kind of just... You just follow the piano, but you don't see them very clearly. Yeah, one time Dylan said um, he was introducing the band. This was at the uh, Minor League Baseball Stadium in Fallsburg, no, in Fishkill, New York.
2: Yeah, Beacon, New York. I was there. What's that? I you was were at there? that show. I was at that show.
1: Yeah. yeah, well, that's your job, to go to every Bob Dylan show. <laughs> I was at two shows there, actually. One in two thousand four, one in I don't know, two thousand nine. And Dylan maybe you remember this. Dylan was interested was introducing the band and he said about the bass player. He said, you know, uh Arthur got a uh, baseball glove for his wife today. Not a very good trade. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So yeah, the way in which Creeley read I think is is also resonant and stays with you. His deli- his style of delivery. Right. This sometimes halting this sense of him speaking through a fissure or a crack in some organ that human beings possess but not all of them access, let alone can speak out of, which I think might be called the heart, oddly. You know, it kind of came out in this funny kind of Yankee hesitancy and insistence. I remember significantly when I was getting my master's degree at Brown, being with Keith Waldrop, poet speaking of going to a Creeley reading in London, and this would have been maybe in the 60s, and of his having had a relationship with Robert Creeley through reading, but then, you know, through reading pages of Creeley's work, but then hearing Creeley read provided information that he felt was essential to understanding his poetics. Oh. And his take was that what Creeley emphasized was not the end of the line. It was the beginning of the line. It was the beginning, Ah. the insistence on the, you know, the starting out, the starting out. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: that's really interesting. Yeah, because because that poem that you chose, Sam, I, I was struck by the kind of inconclusive, kind of unsatisfying ending of the poem. But maybe uh-huh. if you read the first line, <laughs> emphasize the first line of that last line of the poem, maybe maybe it works. Who's to say?
0: Well, um, you know, maybe we should just start reading some poems.
1: Yeah. Each of us should read our own poem that we chose.
0: Coming
2: all at all of this with beginner's mind, you had mentioned this Yankee quality sound. Yeah. And in the poems, I really got a still small voice. Um The sense that I was entering a conversation between a person and um, himself, an internal Mm. dialogue, Mm. monologue that's ongoing. Is that part of uh, what you had in mind by Yankee?
0: I think that that sense of in conversation with oneself, is that something that you associate with a new england consciousness i'm not sure i quite understood maybe what i meant is that he discovered a new country and the topography of that country strikes me as (laughs) a little bit like the flares or the spots that are, that radiate out from the sun that they're these kinds of gamma rays like you know yeah i, I don't know i'm bull <laughs> but that's, not, that's, <laughs> that's not interesting though
2: i yeah okay i want to think more about what i meant by the conversation
1: with um oneself I, I do want to say something because i've been uh, listening i have a record player i must confess and I listened to records incredibly slowly, like unbelievably, you know, like 30 seconds a day, maybe less. And I gradually listened to records in this obsessive but minimal way. So I have this record by Robert Frost that I listened to very recently of him reading his poetry. So, uh, you know, and and I admired the reading a lot. I'm, I'm, not, I'm a little bit, I'm not a, exactly a fan of Robert Frost, but just hearing him read was really impressive and as you're talking about a person talking to himself, it does seem right that, that suddenly to me that Robert Frost is this is in a sort of solitude. Solitude is the word I'm thinking of where he's mm. kind of he's kind of musing to himself you know two roads diverge by a wood he's all by himself like what should I take this side that side you know he's, he's kind of like he doesn't trust anyone enough to talk to him yeah he's t- kind of always talking See? to himself.
0: The yeah, monologue that, of a swamp Yankee. Uh, mm. <laughs> I think that Frost said at some juncture that the poet is, uh, I forget the exact quote, but to chase it, you know, into a corner, something like that the poet is um, argues with God or is in an unhappy uh-huh. love relationship with God, which I guess is you know, some kind of dialogue, some sense of back and forth, you know, just picking up on your point, Andrew.
2: In the dialogical in Creeley, I don't get a lot of concrete, vivid poetic images, which which I'm intrigued by, but it draws attention to the language as such, that this is language of someone's narrative, dialogue. The poet is here. I'm encountering the linguistic field of the poet the poet is not necessarily um, some sort of
1: lens looking at a landscape or the, the ocean, or the cosmos. I'm reading this yeah. book by uh, by Marshall McLuhan and Harley Parker called Through the Vanishing Point, And they're kind of obsessed with um, something about visual space and non-visual space in the history of Western culture. Anyway, they quote Yeats as saying Yeats uh, methodically went through his Holmes removing all visual qualities, removing all visual imagery. So, which I never thought of uh, Yeats that way, but uh, and maybe Creeley it took it a step even further. You know.
0: Well, the one thing about Creeley, and this is again anecdotal, is that it was related to a billboard. He was with somebody else, and they were looking <laughs> at a billboard. And the billboard was making a play on language and making an illusion. Mm-hmm. And the guy said, Oh, look at that billboard and, and chuckled or something. And Creeley looked at it and could not understand it at all. That he was the, and that Creeley from that uh, speculated that he was a little bit incapable of perceiving illusion. Huh. Mm-hmm. Something like that, allusion that you know something is alluding to something else, which uh-huh. I think you know, Sparrow, in terms of your uh, I, I'm, you know, hatred, antipathy, <laughs> you know, strong antipathy toward metaphor, um, you know, that that you know, in Creeley, maybe you would find a kindred spirit, yeah. I
1: mean, I've been trying to figure out how much I was influenced by Creeley because I had that book for love, and I never buy anything, so somebody must have given it to me, or I found it on the street or something, and I had it. I remember in the 80s, uh, when I lived in Washington Heights in Manhattan, I would read it, and I never had a sense, this guy is influencing me, but like, I have literally written thousands of poems that strongly resemble Creeley, so... Mm. It could be that, you know, out of Creeley comes a lot of my aesthetic.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the other thing that we want to say in terms of sort of aesthetic is that you can't really talk about Creeley without Charles Olson having extrapolated or quoting from their voluminous correspondence the line, form is never more than an extension of content. Um, mm. You know, which is this kind of signal moment in Olson's mapping and projection of projective verse, the essay, that mm. more or less opens the um, door to the, you know, 1955 Donald Allen edited an anthology, The New American Poetry. Mm. It's a very um,
2: famous anthology.
0: Yeah. And one thing that's often not brought up in relation to Creeley and that and that dictum uh, regarding form, I I believe in later life he shortened it to just form happens. (laughs) Yeah, form happens. And it Uh, also is a little bit reminiscent of Mother Ann Lee, the founder or one of the founders of the Shaker movement who lived up, um, whose place was up in Albany, actually, on the way to the airport. The quote that Guy Davenport titled one of his essay books, uh, Every Force Evolves a Form.
1: Wow. That's a quote from the Shaker Woman. Yeah. Who I think is, I read this book about the Shakers recently, like a kind of, uh, you know, souvenir tourist book from some Shaker Residence or something, you know, a historical place you visit. And I, I think she's the reincarnation of Jesus. I think that's the idea of the Shakers, is that Jesus returned in the form. A bunch of guys in England, they got together and they knew that Jesus was going to return in the form of a woman. And then they found this woman and it was like, wait, this is it. She's Jesus. I think that's, I don't know, I forget her name, but I think that must be the. And then she moved to uh, the USA. I think it was already the USA. It was some right around the time of the revolution.
0: Yeah, just prior, I think, in the 1750s, 60s. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So
2: form happens. Form happens. Does that mean that the form emerges organically in the act of composition? Like the, the theme will impel some sort of form that helps to project the energy of the poem?
1: To I the think reader. The action
0: of the poem. You know, the dynamic of the poem emerges directly out of its out of what happens. I think that, you know, and also another influence for Creeley among a host of writers, poets of the middle of the last century was a little bit Jackson Pollock. Yeah. Um, you know, mm. kind of almost an idea of action poetry. But the significant way of understanding Jackson Pollock's practical influence on art is, and it's a, something that I read once and then could never find again. At some point in an interview or in conversation, Pollock said, when I'm in the thing, I can do no harm. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm in the zone, it's like Julius Irving you know, talking about being in the zone.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that that's the operative tenor of what Creeley and Olson, among others, initiate.
1: Although, you know, Creeley is a minimalist and Olson and Jackson Pollock are maximalists. You know, they're putting everything in and, uh, really is putting nearly nothing in, mm. and perhaps in a similar way. Maybe he's more Rothko than uh, than he is uh, Pollock.
0: Yeah, dig it, for sure. Removing,
1: yeah. removing, removing, until you get to the undestroyable essence of a poem.
2: Sort of, sort yeah, of like yeah. listening to quartet music, reducing huh. the symphony orchestra to just five instruments to get to right. those deeper yeah. synonyms
0: one thing i don't have a sense of curiously since we're talking about practicalities kind of is i've never seen any notebooks of Creeley's. did he write on a typewriter yeah and it reminded
1: reminded me when we were just talking about form that ted berrigan said a lot depends on the kind of notebook you write in you'll write short lines if you have a small notebook if you have a big notebook you write big lines and so it could yeah. be that Creeley just was a cheapskate bought small notebooks, and that explains his whole oeuvre.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also the other person that comes to mind since we brought up Kerouac, and, and maybe one of these poems is uh, Jack's Blues, right? Yeah. It is, uh you know, very much like an interesting short, uh, somewhat didactic essay by Kerouac on spontaneous prose. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Super interesting, but that also has that same Pollock taste. So
2: when you say, Sam, I can do no wrong in the zones, paraphrasing Jackson Pollock, you said that pertained to Creeley.
0: Yeah, I think the the phrase, when I'm in the thing, I can do no harm. Okay, when I'm in the thing, I can
2: do no harm. Can you explain how that applies to Creeley, Creeley's
0: compositional method? It's a little abstract, I think that it has to do with surrender. Mm. I think that it has to do with the worst subsidence of judgmental mind Mm. of entering into a, you know, what do we want to call it, like compositional state and being able to not be distracted. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean,
0: Jack Spicer also talks about this, you know, in terms of his messages from Mars, um, you know, the way he got through that is by getting pretty drunk. You know, he would spend the evening drinking and then go home drunk and sit down and write, you know, into the night, as it were. Is, is, um,
2: is George Quasha's pre-verb project um, similar?
0: You mean George Quasha, the reincarnation of William Blake? <laughs> Um, know, right? <laughs> that piece I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that George would ascribe to re sayings of that according to his own constructed wheelhouse that, you know, takes components from all of these things and, you know, might evoke the realm of the Dakini. You know, he's got his whole sort of the sense of an axial poetics of, you know, a little bit like Odysseus lining up the. Uh, ax notches, you know, like everything's like aligned and then something is able to get through because of the perfection of posture or some trip like that.
1: Because he would yeah. take like uh, Homer, I, know, I mean, Odysseus would take an ax and he would throw it in such a way that it would hit 20 different something or others that were all lined up. Wasn't that it? it was what That's yeah, one I don't of think it, the I don't tests think a he did. One
0: axe he was shooting an arrow okay yeah when he comes back to Ithaca
1: after and they just think he's this like homeless weirdo and then he has these uh tests uh contests to prove his uh, powers something like that I think that's the I just want to give the context for our audience of the few people that are not completely uh conversant in uh, Homer
0: as you know, Sparrow, our audience now is in the double digits. Ah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I feel as though you know we've been wrapping a, ro- a lot about around Creeley. I'm wondering, can I just say, are we resisting actually getting to like reading and um, talking about the poem specifically? I'm just wondering because I I, yeah. I feel maybe a little bit of that. You no. Know? Yeah. I think I'm
1: feeling it. I mean, I do. I feel like what is that word? Resistance is that the word they use in psychoanalysis? You know that I'm, I'm coming up with excuses to avoid confronting these poems. Why that is, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I am too, and I'm wondering what that field is, because I I also feel. I and it already occurred to me once. You know, maybe this is a double header or a feeling of it's difficult for me personally reconcile Creeley as kind of, you know, evoking Odysseus a little bit of a heroic figure, frankly, Mm -hmm. this kind of Odinian one-eyed guy, this almost (laughs) kind of very strange and at the same time, exact intelligence. And also the fact that Creeley was super duper important to me as a, tutelary spirit you know i mm-hmm. felt when Creeley was alive i knew somebody was looking out for me mm. and yeah him dying was was like was a um cut away or shortened one of the legs of my stool ah. yeah yeah same with greg demetrius who
1: i mentioned before
0: oh yeah he felt that way
1: i think so yeah
0: Well, I was talking to Andrew about Greg Demetrius and said, oh, wow, we should get a hold of Greg and talk to him and, you know, do a little vignette, you know, of this relationship. Mm. And Andrew got back to me with word that Greg Demetrius may have killed himself, um, but at any rate died a few years ago in 2017. Wow. Yeah, I read his
2: obituary in the language I thought was euphemistic. Um, Greg Demetrius died suddenly or unexpectedly, and I I often wonder is that euphemism for suicide? I don't know for for sure, though.
0: Because he was
2: young. He was. I would put him in his late 30s or early 40s. He was quite young, young guy.
1: Where was the obituary? In the Times?
2: It was in the uh, whatever local paper um, comes out of Buffalo. Oh, buffalo observer something like
1: that <laughs> i mean i think on some level i'm just worried these poems are so short what's what do you say about them they're kind oh. of self-explanatory they're they're they are what they are they're kind of mystifying little uh, paradigms
0: <laughs> well i think it's worth i think it would be worth testing that proposition because i think that there actually is um, an infinite um recourse of of language within these short events
1: okay i think we're working up the courage to actually read let's, these poems let's, out loud
2: let's try one
0: which, all right which, so which here's with? what i would say that maybe we should just use this sequence measure you know okay. and, and the first poem which would be written in the five first five years of the 50s Um, from this book, For Love, is The Immoral Proposition.
1: Uh, Okay, that's the one I chose, so I'll read it. The Immoral Proposition. If you never do anything for anyone else, you are spared the tragedy of human relationships. If quietly, and like another time, there is the passage of an unexpected thing, to look at it is more than it was. God knows nothing is competent. Nothing is all there is. The unsure egoist is not good for himself.
0: So, you know, this is an instance in which, you know, I would initially evoke that transmission that I received from Keith relative to, you know, the insistence on the beginning. Mm -hmm. And also, not to criticize your reading, Sparrow, which you know is charming as ever, ha! is that is the choice to hyphenate uh, relation and then dash ships. Period. Mm-hmm. That ships strikes me as super, you know, graphilectically or in the syntax of the page. That ships stands out, and then in juxtaposition in the next line. There is the passage. So that ships and the huh. passage um, strikes me as I- important. You know, Speaking perhaps, of
2: Odysseus, too. And,
0: oh, yeah, Long, yeah.
2: and Longfellow, ships passing in the night.
0: Yeah, huh. and also alluding, perhaps, to that sense of the solitariness of the oceanic realm or that mm-hmm. line on the horizon, that curve.
1: And the solitariness of, of being a New Englander, which is our uh, hypothesis of this podcast.
0: Yeah, which we need to figure out what that is.
1: The tragedy of human relationships. Only a uh, so someone from Massachusetts would write that line. The, yeah. Uh, and it, people we, from South Carolina don't go around thinking all oh, relationships are tragic.
2: And the relationship, the word itself is broken, right?
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, and also... Yeah, I mean, Faulkner, I, I would, you know, posit is, is interested in the, you know, I was just trying to tell an entertaining story about the eternal dilemmas of the human heart. Was, <laughs> I think part of Faulkner's speech on receiving the Nobel Prize. Mm. But the, but the um, also for me, you know, when I see the tragedy of you, I think it has to do with family, with the familiar. Hmm. And the, yeah, and the egoist seeks to separate himself from the familiar, that family, I guess, um, you know, mm-hmm. which necessarily calls for an act of, of acknowledgement, of fellowship, um, even if it's an involuntary one. I mean, so one thing that
1: I think is important to remember when I was thinking about this poem is that the title suggests. The immoral proposition suggests that the person narrating this poem is not trustworthy. This is an immoral person making an immoral proposition, and that everything in the poem is untrue, is kind of evil, really. You know, the whole idea that uh, human relationships are tragic, the whole idea that the unsure egoist is not good for himself... These are all the, I mean, I must say, and it'll date our podcast, but uh, I couldn't help thinking about the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. You know, God knows nothing is competent. Nothing is all there is. The unsure egoist is not good for himself. Now, Trump, he's a perfect example of a very sure egoist. He's good for himself. And he knows that nothing is competent. He's the only one who's competent. You know, it's a kind of, this is the male, patriarchal, evil mind speaking. I mean, I don't know, but that's one way to look at it.
0: Mm -hmm. You mean reading that kind of double negative, the unsure, and then the egoist is not. And also, I guess, evoking, Sparrow, something you'd brought up in relation to the New York School of Poetry, Mm -hmm. um, in caps, is uh, you know where if you have something to say that's kind of banal, you just say the opposite.
1: Oh yeah, it's an interesting. In other words, the sure egoist is not good for himself. That's that is a kind of truism. Well, the, the sure, yeah, the cocksure egoist is not good for himself. That sounds too, you know, predictable. The unsure egoist is not good for himself. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very unclear what that means. Does it mean that egoists are just no good, or is it just unsure egoists are not good for themselves? Why not for himself, you know?
2: And to, and to what degree it's interesting to think about the semantic difficulty as being a purposeful part of the poem.
1: Yeah, it seems. I mean, one takes it. And also, I think one of the things I was going to say about Creeley reading which is pretty much true of every great poet, and even some not so great poets, he read with extraordinary precision. And you felt very much that each of these words is like a little brick in the edifice of the poem, it's got to be there. So yeah, I presume, you know, that every one, one of these words is necessary. I was struck by
2: the uh, the form of the poem. It suggests, or the genre rather, the speech act, if you will. Huh. It suggested to me a sermon.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Mor-
2: the moral quality of it, uh, and the structure too. Um, in so many sermons, I'm a big fan of the American sermon,
1: Christian oh, yeah, sermon yeah, you said that. from
2: the uh, Second Great Awakening onward. But you often encounter the tripartite structure of the problem, statement of the moral problem the hmm. exposition, and then the, um, the lesson, hmm. the didactic piece. And I was hmm. um, tickled, tickled to find that structure in this poem. I don't know if it, that, that was intended or if that's just something I'm projecting onto hmm. it. But yeah. it is quite American to add something to the
1: doing. Um, is that an American structure, that that tripartite structure doesn't exist in European sermons?
2: For some reason, the American sermons that emerged out of the 19th century really expanded upon this uh, form. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's this sort of initial assertion, if you never do anything for anyone else, you are spared the tragedy of human relationships. Um, It does have a, like a sermon, a moral ballast, if quietly and like another time, There's the passage of an unexpected thing, a little bit mysterious, um, and like another time, if quietly and like another time, to look at it is more than it was. That there's a a starkness, that the egoist sees things very sharply. I am here, and then it's out there, and there's the separation.
1: The language gets very uh, monosyllabic. You know, the passage of an unexpected has lots of syllables, and then to look at it is more than it was. God knows that whole, uh, what do you call it, to couplet is all uh, uh, monosyllables. I don't know if that means anything.
0: Yeah, well, that you also make too much of the thing. The relationships tend to decrease that sense of starkness and tend to soften, tend to bring out the curve. Um, I think another Creeley thing that uh, that, you know, Creeley said, which I think I invoked uh, in in a podcast past is um, a road is long that knows no turnings. That Mm. sense of the curving. And then I mean, one thing is uh, and characteristic of Creeley's poems is the use of speech. You know, God Mm. knows. God knows. You know, this is like God knows that was a that was a bad evening. God knows. And then there's this weird, nothing is competent, nothing is competent, and then there's no grammatical separation, nothing is competent, nothing is all there is, you know, which is a Gnostic statement, you know, human beings, you know, one of our tremendous attributes and maybe our greatest attributes and greatest weapon against the onrush of the cyborg is that we're able to conceive of nothing. And then the unsure egoist is not good for himself. (laughs) A little baffling.
1: Yeah. I mean, I found myself thinking in general about these poems, but about this one in particular, which is partly why I picked it. um, This idea of using very simple paradoxical language, you know, reminds me of the Zen Koans, and I was like, spent whatever 20 minutes find, trying to find a good, you know, succinct Zen koan. I think there's one that I quoted in some uh, essay of mine. Uh, find me a rock from the bottom of the sea that isn't wet. You know, and <laughs> <telling> uh, <laughs> you know, and you just, you know, a Zen koan, For those of you among our 24 listeners that don't know this, you know, you sit there. You're in a Zen monastery. You're meditating. You think about this over and over again, this one question. And then you go to your Zen master and you say, I've got the answer. How you find a rock at the bottom of the sea that isn't wet, you uh, cover it with saran wrap. And then your Zen master says, you're an idiot, and sends you back to your cushion. And then one day you suddenly have a breakthrough. One day it hits you completely what the answer is, and then you reach enlightenment. And these poems are kind of reminiscent of that.
2: And did did Creeley have some sort of um, interest in the East because uh, the parsimony, uh, the point you just made, Sparrow about the semantic inconclusiveness of what um, absolute meaning, it 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 did remind me of Zen Cohen's and Chinese um, Taoist brush paintings and poems. Mm. Was there any Eastern we say that you- there? Didn't we
0: say that he was in Burma? Was that right? Well,
2: he, he, Bur- he was in Burma. Sam had mentioned that, right, in his um, biographical introduction.
0: You know, that was related to the end of the war years, uh, 43, 45, around in there. A couple of years he was did, um, part of the war effort, I guess, as it were. Sam, did he a, did he say anything about
2: Eastern traditions in your years knowing him?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think that Sparrow, or you actually, were more, you know, he... he Embodied it, but I do not have a sense that really had a, a mala in his in his uh, <laughs> pocket. Yeah, no.
1: Yeah, and I found myself it, kind of kind of tying myself in knots thinking about how poets or writers in, often use the same techniques as mystics. These kind of paradoxes that seem to liberate some kind of meaning, but it doesn't mean that they are mystics. It could be a kind of a coincidence or a kind of, I don't know what the word is, philosophic pun, that they're both using similar techniques. The mystic is trying to express uh, the another world, some transcendent reality. And the writer typically is trying to write about this world, trying to understand this reality. And in both cases, the paradoxical, Utterance can be useful to, to get at the heart of something, but they not may not be the same something. You know? Sure,
0: that makes sense. Yeah, it would be difficult to think, for example, of Beckett without that resource.
1: You mean with Beckett without Zen, you mean?
0: Like Beckett without nothing. Oh, yeah, without, without nothing. Without the, without the, yeah, God knows nothing is competent, nothing is all there is <laughs> you know that's yeah and I, I guess two things one is you know again clearly had one eye yeah good yeah point. and yeah and Bishop Barclay uh, the philosopher Barclay um, you know he talked about God as as having monocular vision oh, yeah? because God is one and therefore <laughs> his vision necessarily is not bifurcated, he doesn't have binocular vision. Hmm. And similarly, Creeley did not have binocular vision. For him, driving was something that was not based on seeing the road as it is ahead, but seeing the road as other people may see it, learned through habit to have perspective. I don't know enough about the exigencies of having one eye and what kind of practical changes it makes. And what is that line
1: in that Jesus says something like, if thine eye be single, thy body will be full of light? Something like that, right?
0: Oh, nice. You don't know,
1: Andrew?
2: Um, I don't, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know in any sort huh. of
1: definitive way. I remember I hearing that- it from yogis, you know, Friends of mine that were would-be yogis in the 70s thought it had some kind of mystical meaning that tied in with yoga.
0: I do know that in the work, in the Gurdjieff-Espensky work, one of the exercises is that you open a door and you place the door between your eyes and you train yourself to... Get out of binocular vision to allow each eye to see independently. Really? Each eye is seeing
1: one side of the door.
0: Right. One divided
1: by the door.
0: Yeah, and to feel that elliptical point between your eyes, I guess, perhaps. Well,
2: Creeley is certainly someone who I think um, sees clearly. I left these poems thinking, okay, I don't know much about this poet but I do get the sense that he sees things.
1: He sees clearly, but maybe flatly, you know? There is something a little flat about the poems. I mean, I don't mean it as an insult, but even on the page, they look sort of flat. You know, they maybe they don't have that kind of three-dimensional depth, you know, that, that a two-eyed poet has.
0: <laughs> I think this poem, the next poem that we were going to look at in this yeah. collection, For Love... Uh, which comes from a later period, that is from the 55 to 60, is called Kora, and I think it does have a bit of a bulge. (laughs) So it's spelled K-O-R-E, and it's pronounced Kora from the Greek word, which means a young woman.
2: Dressed in a very specific um, garb, kind of a free-flowing robe. Right. This is where the word
1: choreography
0: comes from? No one knows. Uh, no, cora Chorus, Choreography. I'm not sure what the what the etymology of Chore, but it's not. <laughs> uh. Yeah, the cora figure, you know, beautiful sculptures. But also, if you pronounce it like an American, what you also see is core. Oh,
1: K-O-R-E,
0: yes. you feel that core. I'm not sure clearly would have been sensitive to that as a straightforward gab but you know maybe one can see that so this poem goes as i was walking i came upon chance walking the same road upon as i sat down by chance to move later if and as i might light the wood was light and green and what i saw before i had not seen it was a lady, accompanied by goatmen leading her. Her hair held earth. Her eyes were dark. A double flute made her move. Oh love, where are you leading me now?
1: Yeah, very Creeley-esque uh, reading there. You. Put a lot of the emphasis on the first words in the line, not always. Yeah, but it's hard to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was trying and a it's, little. And it's it's a
1: little more of like a dance rhythm, if you if you read it that way. I think seems to me. As I was walking, I came upon chance walking the same road upon. But I mean, it has a little more of a lilt.
2: Aren't we supposed to? Th- Did anyone think of um, the Pilgrim's Progress?
1: No, I didn't, uh, and, I, and I think about the Pilgrim's Progress fairly often.
2: Right, from um, 1678, John Bunyan's work, but mm-hmm. uh, that allegorical character is present in this poem in terms of the encounter with chance and love, and the mm-hmm. Pilgrim's Progress does begin with
1: um, a pilgrimage, no surprise. And the the pilgrim maybe I thought of it in the back of my mind. The pilgrim would come upon some person, a personification of some uh, quality, and it would have that name. It would be, he'd be he would yeah. meet doubt, and the doubt would talk to him and say, "What are you doing? Why going on a pilgrimage? It's stupid. That's Hang correct. out here with me." So doubt would be personified, much as chance seems to be personified in this poem.
0: Yeah I mean coming out of the 50s also then you have Cage and mm-hmm. you know he knew John Cage back in the day at Black Mountain the right. idea of chance operations you know of of Cage's mm-hmm. decision to uh t- 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 to oh. operate in the in a manner imitating cha- imitating nature, that nature proceeds through chance operations. I, I'm sorry, I'm garbling his uh, more precise language.
1: Aleatory, that's the word I'm trying to remember. I was using it lately in some class I was teaching. I think that's the word for the, the adjectival word. word of having to do with things that are decided by chance, like particularly divination. It's aleatory. Aleatory.
2: Yeah.
1: Beautiful word. Yeah, because I think there was some Latin or Greek, now I forgot, some game with dice that was called like Alia. And so mm. aleatory just means in reference to this, you know, someone playing like craps or something.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, and the iconography, the sort of diction is also out of Provençal. Yes. You know, the personification of the lady. Um, But I guess she's associated with chance. He uses chance in two different ways. Yes. Uh, I came upon chance walking the same road upon. And then as I sat down by chance to move later, as I sat down by chance, by by circumstance, by happenstance.
1: But it's a pun. He could also be sitting down next to this character chance. It's either one.
2: By chance, this uh, character so this wasn't... Oh, I got a third possibility. By chance, this character wasn't chance. It was a lady. Oh.
1: Hmm. Okay. Oh. Is that a possible... Yes, it's possible, I guess. Possible reading.
0: So I think that if we if we could really sit, you know, for a moment and look at Creeley's evocation of chance, I have a feeling that there would be some deep, contemplation of the nature of chance Mm. that we could propose and also of course Creeley was deeply interested in the improvisational in jazz in bebop in how you interact with a sonic field that will draw it out will bring out new colors sonic colors and the way in which you are with the world poetically
1: wasn't he in a band i suddenly remembered that when you were talking about his life story i remember like late in life there was a band that he performed with am i do you remember this i forget whether it was a jazz group or a rock group i thought they were like in ball in uh, buffalo with him
2: I i really like what you're saying about the chance operation salmon these both of these poems i feel um present a journey of chance they're they they're occasions for setting out hmm. and you don't quite know where they're going to
0: go they they make up their mind in medius race many thanks for joining us on this edition of baffling combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous and please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange. Shh, sh, sh, sh.